Father, how good it is and how necessary it is for our, our souls and our, the entirety of our lives to gather this way each week in the familiar process and pattern of joining with your people in singing songs that declare the truth that's been revealed to us in your word, hearing your very word read and it resonate within our ears and declaring our dependence upon you and your spirit that to, to help us, to shape us, to transform us, to convict us, to assure us of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Lord, these repetitive patterns are so necessary, we confess, because we are so prone to forget. We are so prone to look elsewhere to try and convince ourselves in other ways that what we need ultimately or in this moment is somehow outside of what you've given to us or provided for us. But Lord, we are here this morning and your word is open before us as an act not only of great confidence, but also of great faith and great submission, looking to you, the one who is the supreme authority over all things. And we do so in this posture each week, looking to your word, reminding ourselves that you are supreme over all creation, that you're supreme over your church, that you reign preeminent, and you have your rightful place in doing so over our very lives. And Lord, we confess that in saying that, that we need great help in that, that we are those who push against that, even forget that, become negligent of putting that truth before us. And so we ask, as our gracious Heavenly Father, as the one who's given us your spirit, the one who's revealed yourself to us by your own word, would you help us this morning to not only affirm these things with our lips, but Lord, in the very posture of our lives, our wills and our ambition and our devotion, bowing in the same direction, declaring you to be preeminent, supreme and sufficient in all things. Help me, your servant, the minister of your word, to speak plainly and clearly, to speak only what has been given to us by your word and that would exalt Christ this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I believe one of the great dangers for every church and in every age, essentially, is to affirm certain words, but at the same time to be ignorant of their meaning or ultimately their implication upon our lives. It is good to hear that a particular church would want to exalt Christ or would consider the teachings of Jesus to be of such importance that they would want to study them or give their lives to them. But the all-important follow-up question to hearing such a statement must be, who is the Jesus that you worship? As you read through the book of Colossians, what you find is that Paul assumes these Christians have affirmed certain things. They have affirmed even this great teaching of the supremacy of Christ. They are those, verse 4, who have put their faith in Christ. The word of truth, the gospel, he says in verse 6, it's bearing fruit among them. He writes to them knowing in verse 12 that they are those who share in the inheritance of the saints of the light. And yet, how does Paul begin this letter? He begins with this deluge of 
Christ's superior worth as he puts before them the greatness of Jesus in phrase upon phrase and line upon line. Here is the issue then for the Colossian church and I think every other church since. While we may be those who most certainly affirm the supremacy of Christ over all things, do we at the same time understand the implications of what that means? Or to put it this way, does our profession filter down into our practice? Like the Colossian church, the danger for us today as God's people is that we would be those who are influenced perhaps more than we actually know by the spirit of the age. By that, what I mean is that there is certain default, normative, assumed, cultural beliefs that we all live in that will inevitably shape how we think or respond or live regardless of whether we recognize it or not. What I mean is that the church is never immune from the intellectual and particular philosophical emphasis of the day. That was most certainly the case in the church of the Colossians, that there was certain teaching that was going on that Paul wants to be sure this is happening all around you. Teachers in your own city who are professing these things, are you clear on what that means and what this means? Are you clear on what the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ means insofar as it's actually contrary to the culture you live in and what would be upheld and espoused? You see why the danger is the same for us today and the great necessity of having clarity on these things is necessity for us today because the church, as I said, is never immune from being influenced by the certain philosophical and intellectual beliefs of that day. Now, granted, it is a whole lot easier to look back in history and see what those emphases were and how the church navigated it than it is in real time as we're driving down the highway, as it were. But is there hope for us? Are we just going to be those who are driven off a cliff by our culture and believing certain things or assuming certain things that are normative to us until it's too late? No, this is where the greatness of God's word and the graciousness of him giving us his spirit is, is so critical and that we are given the scriptures to enable us to recognize these things, to see what is true and what is false, to see what it actually means to say that Christ is supreme over all things and to identify where, oh, that right there, that belief, that's actually contrary to that. My profession hasn't filtered down into my practice here. That's why we give ourselves, as Pastor Greg mentioned, to the ordinary means of grace again and again, repeatedly and repeatedly, reminding ourselves what is here in God's word. No, we go to the scriptures continually to put Christ before our eyes. We submit ourselves to the teaching of his word, and we humbly bow before it. Because for any church to say and to set out, we will exalt Christ, that has to be so much more than just a doctrinal position that is written down somewhere in some PDF. Because it is also, at the same time, the greatest good that we can do for our souls to say we will exalt Christ. 
The doctrinal implications of that reality are critical for the life and the health of any church because it is, as we sang this morning, the anchor that holds us. It's the the lens by which we rightly look at the world around us and our own selves, our own lives, and interpret our circumstances. It, It becomes the very compass by which we rightly navigate the world that we live in. And what I want us to see this morning is that we are only convinced of his sufficiency when we rightly see his supremacy. And the theme of this letter is most certainly the supremacy, and then by implication, the sufficiency of Christ for all of life. Because of this reason, that is why I believe why Paul begins his letter in this way, knowing full well of what is happening within the culture and the teaching and the beliefs within this city, he begins by saying, let's consider Christ. Have you considered who he is? And if we would aim to be such a church that revels in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, we would do well to follow the same pattern. So my goal this morning is pretty straightforward, is to take one of the most amazing portions of Scripture that unfolds some of the most mysterious doctrines of Christ and say something hopefully very helpful and very practical to what it means to be a Christian today. And so what we'll do is simply look at a high level, giving meditation to really just the three emphases that I see here in this portion of text, reminding ourselves that Christ most certainly is the creator of all things, that he is most certainly the sustainer of all things. And as he says there in verses 20, he's the reconciler of all things. If we are going to see Christ as supreme and sufficient, let's consider him as the creator, sustainer, and reconciler. Look back at verse 15 where Paul speaks of Christ being the creator of all things, where he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do not overlook the exclusivity and the absolute greatness of what Paul has just said. If you were hearing this this morning for the first time, would you be struck by the exclusiveness of what was just read. What Paul says has tremendously transformational implications for our lives and for what he is going to unpack in this letter. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. One of the things you'll notice in this portion is the absolutes that Paul makes, all things, everyone, all places. He repeats all, all, all. He's trying to get his hands around the greatness of what it is that we are declaring and confessing as Christians. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. Everything. Can you imagine making such a claim about anything else? Anything else in created order? Could you insert that person, that experience, that place, that hobby, and that phrase actually do justice? 
All things come from me and exist for me. That should be very scary if you were to ever hear anyone say that. Because that's a claim of exclusivity. All things come from me and exist for me. And yet that is exactly what Paul is saying about the Lord Jesus. Everything. See, there is no escaping the exclusivity and the exalted position of that statement. So it should raise something within our minds and saying, how is that possible? What exactly gives anyone the rightful authority to make such a claim, to hold such a status? Well, Paul's already mentioned it in passing as he got to this statement there in verse 16, because in verse 15, he says he is the image of God. He really is God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, this is prompted a bit by some of the false teaching that was happening there within the city. There were some, many, who were denying that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. There was a teaching that was going around that was propping him up as a phantom or some sort of emanation from God, a derivative of God, but not essentially really actually God. And he says, no, he is the image of the invisible God. He's not a representative, but he really is God. When you look to Christ, you see the God who otherwise could not be seen because he reveals him. Jesus is not a version of God. He's not just some representation to speak on behalf of God. He is God made visible. And of course, this is made explicitly clear in the book of Hebrews, almost using the same language. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 1, the opening several verses saying that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature? Now, what is critical for us to grasp is that the Lord Jesus not only made God known to the eye, to see Christ was to see the image of the invisible God, but equally, and actually more important, is that he also made visible what man could not know by reason or intellect. Listen to Calvin in his comments on this portion The sum of this, that God in himself, that is in his naked majesty, invisible, and that not only to the eyes of the body merely, but also to the understandings of men, and that he is revealed to us in Christ alone, that we may behold him as in a mirror. For in Christ he shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. We must, therefore, beware of seeking him elsewhere. For everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. What he is saying and what the scriptures are proclaiming, that Christ being the image of the invisible God did not only come down to reveal God in the flesh for those 30 some odd years, but that he, as the image of the invisible God, proclaims to us, not just by visible sight, By the nature of who he is, this is God. This is who the God of all eternity is, revealed to us in the Son. Friends, what this this means is that if you would know anything of God, if you would seek to make sense of your life as it's been revealed by your creator, you must do so by looking to Christ. 
to try and make sense of this God or to make sense of your life apart from Christ is going to be a distorted, deflected image of what really is. And that is why we place so much emphasis upon who is Christ. What has he said? What has he done? What has he revealed? And Paul says, if we would understand him to be the creator, all things created through him and for him, we say such a thing in part because he's the image of the invisible God. It is by the supremacy and sufficiency of his person that we are enabled to say that. But he also says in verse 16, I can make such a statement about Christ, not only because he's the image of the invisible God, but also because he's the rightful heir. That's what it means when he says he's the firstborn of all creation. A bit of clarification here. In that day and culture, firstborn carried more significance than birth order. As you're getting to know me and my family, I may have introduced, this is my son Jonah. He's our oldest. He's my firstborn. And you would understand. Not only is he the tallest, but he's also the oldest of all the Wagner children. But to say that Christ is the firstborn, it has really nothing to do with birth order. It has everything to do with rank. It's not a chronological distinction. It is an order of importance. The firstborn was the one who had the title of and the rights to the inheritance. Jewish culture understood this and practiced this. Roman culture understood and practiced this. They had no question in the church of Colossae as to what Paul was referring to when he said Christ is the firstborn over all creation. To say such a thing is to say that Christ is the honored one. He's the privileged one. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And what we're saying is this. If Jesus really is God, he's the image of the invisible God. And if he's the rightful heir, he's not just another man, then Christ has the credentials to not only be the creator of all things, but the purpose for which all creation exists because of who he is. He is supreme over all creation because of the nature of who he is. The invisible God imaged to us, the firstborn over all creation. And what this means then is that there is not one atom of creation that exists outside of Christ's creative decree. And equally, there is not one particle that exists outside of his authority as creator. All things were created through him and for him. Now, this biblical truth has mammoth implications upon our daily lives and the future of this very church. If Christ is creator of all things, then he's not just another voice alongside other voices that we may or may not listen to. His decrees are not just one opinion worthy of our consideration among other opinions. If Christ is the creator and if he is the heir, then we have no reason to capitulate to the ethical whims of culture around us because we would be those who hold fast to the word of life because we exist for him. We don't exist unto ourselves. If all things were created through him and for him, we don't exist to ourselves in the sense that we bow down to our own personal preferences in regards to comforts 
or just matters of preference or agendas because we all come together saying Christ is supreme. We glory in and we rest in the supremacy of Christ, first of all, because he's the creator of all things. But secondly, if you look down at verse 17, Paul would tell us not only that, but also he is the sustainer of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's important to remember that the biblical teaching on creation is not only that God spoke everything into existence and is the creator, but that he also upholds all things by the word of his power. He is creator and he is sustainer at the same time. That means God is actively involved in his creation every moment. Consider how Paul lays this out. He says, first of all, that he is the sustainer of all creation. Creation is not self-existent. It doesn't just keep moving forward because it has some nature within itself that just perpetuates motion and moves forward. Jesus Christ is the sustainer of creation who holds all things together. Whether you recognize that, think about it, or remember it each day or not. Second London Confession in chapter 5 in the first paragraph says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least. And by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. Those are wonderful words to meditate upon. As you step out into a new week, reminding yourselves that you go with the God who upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all things by his perfect wisdom for his good purposes. What we can say as Christians is that the laws of nature most certainly exist. But the reason that they exist and that they continue on is because Jesus Christ ensures that they do. He holds the universe together, ensuring that the gravitational pull of the planets remain intact. He holds the chemical bonds between the various elements in our own bodies, ensuring that we don't just explode into a periodic table of elements. He holds the seas and the rivers, the lakes and the mountains, the snow, the sun and the heat. All of it is held in place because Jesus Christ is the sustainer of his creation. Friends, if this is true, what reason do we have to fear? What reason do we have to question the goodness and the ability of our God to direct our steps in the midst of our days. He holds atoms and galaxies in place by his perfect wisdom, design, and guidance for his good purposes. What circumstance then, what unknown future could we ever face in which Christ is not declaring his supreme ability to govern? He sustains all of creation, but... 
Paul says he's not only the sustainer of all creation, he also says he's the sustainer of his new creation. Who's the new creation? His people who have been reanimated, created, and dwelt by his spirit, made alive unto him for his purposes, the church. He sustains the church. He sustains his new creation. And verse 18 tells us there that he is the head. He's the head of this body, which is the church. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To hear of Christ being the head of the church. Maybe you hear that and you think the head of the table. You think the head of the class. Maybe you think of the head of the home. The head of a particular department that you work in. And biblically, the term, it's used to denote leadership and ruling authority, but there's also something more. It's also used to carry with it not only the idea of oversight and leadership, but nourishment and sustaining. He is the head of the church. Think about it in the very phrase and language that Paul uses here, the head of the body. Without the head, our bodies fall apart. It's not only that we're not governed, it's that we don't exist, we don't live, we're not nourished. All that happens within the head is dependent upon the flourishing, depends that the body would be flourishing is what is dependent upon the head. And so to declare that Jesus is the head not only speaks of his great significance as chief, but it reminds us of his great ability to sustain and to direct. In him, we find our purpose, we find our order, we find our direction. And without him, we can say we would only have death, a moment of chaos, and then nothing. And the sustainer, as the sustainer of his new creation, Christ promises to function as her head, reminding us that he will ensure his church has all that she needs because of who he is. And we have so much need to ask that the Spirit of God would take this truth and press it down into our lives, that it would not just be intellectual assent, but that it would move down into the very way that we respond to one another, directs our prayers towards God, and the way that we think about our days. If Christ really is the head of his church, then he will most certainly provide for her as he sees fit, that she will be provided for in regards to all matters of spiritual nourishment, but on to practical levels that he will ensure that she is gifted necessarily for the flourishing of the body because he's the head, that he will place his members as he sees fit within his church with the particular gifts that it needs to serve his purposes because he will provide for her. And as the head, Christ will most surely defend his church. This is such good news for the church facing persecution or just growing hostility or being considered on the margins or perhaps more than just on the margins, actually being full of hateful bigots. What will happen to the church in that sort of day and culture? Well, history has proven that Christ is most certainly sufficient to provide for his new creation because he is her head and will defend her. He will defend her against all evil, against all false teachers, 
We can be very confident that the wolves will be eventually exposed, drug out, struck down, because Christ is the head, and he ensures that it will be that way. If Jesus is the head of the church, then he will surely preserve her. And at times, his church has looked quite irrelevant, quite small. In some cultures, you're wondering, does the church even exist there? And yet we come back here to Colossians 1 and we remind ourselves of this truth. He is the head of the body. What that means then is that we can, with great confidence, turn to the end of the story and take all confidence that the church most certainly endures. The triumphal declaration at the end of the book of Revelation. God dwells with his people. The church endures. Christ, the lion of Judah, fights for her. Christ, the lamb, preserves her. So we let the scriptures remind us and direct our steps that God often does more than we would imagine through less than what we would think. Is that not the testimony of God's people? Gideon, Benjamin, David, the church, God often accomplishes so much more than we would imagine by the means of his great might, because the hope for the church is not found in her visible strength, but by the works of his might. And so we take great confidence that as the head, he sustains her. We glory, we rest in the supremacy of Christ because he's the sustainer of all things. But he's not only creator, he's not only sustainer. Verse 19 and 20 remind us as well, we glory in Christ because he is the reconciler of all things. Look back at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm convinced that reconciliation has to be one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. It speaks of the greatest change that you would never think possible. Because reconciliation in these terms and in this context has to do with the change from enmity to friendship, from judgment to full delight and acceptance. It's a change that is wrought to such a degree that parties that were once at odds that could not be dwelling together are now unified. Skip ahead, look over at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, the very next verse, and you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled. That's the, the scope of this sort of reconciliation that Paul is speaking of here. God has seen fit to reconcile all things to himself. And by this, what Paul means to get at is the immensity, the depth, of this reconciliation, meaning Christ didn't come to reconcile just some minor spats between children in the back of a car on the way to some place. Like they're reconciled, that's figured out now. He has come to reconcile heavenly things where God himself dwells with earthly things where fallen sinful man abides. That is a great chasm. And he has come to reconcile the gap between here to here and say, 
united. No longer enemies, no longer at odds, no longer separated, but reconciled. The reconciliation, the restoration, is the greatest possible reconciliation that we could ever imagine between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And Christ is even sufficient here. He is the sufficient one to reconcile God to man, to reconcile that sort of enmity. And what is the substance of this reconciliation? What is it that we're actually reconciled to? Is it merely that God, once our judge and could rightly drop the gavel and say guilty, now he looks at us with ambivalence and says, you're not guilty. I'll give you that. What sort of great confidence is there in those words? What sort of great comfort is in hearing a God who looks at you side-eyed and just merely says, well, you're not guilty anymore. Let's not forget that. Now, the New Testament goes so much further than to just say acquitted, to just say no longer guilty. The pinnacle of what the New Testament proclaims is that those who were sinners in, at enmity, cut off, cast out, are now adopted, welcomed, received, and beloved. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer helpfully gets at this particular doctrine. And it's interesting, if you go back through the various confessions of church history, the doctrine of adoption seems to be one that was glossed over for many years. And even amidst the Reformation and the gospel being kind of dusted off and held up again, even if you look at many of the confessions that come out of the Reformational period, justification for good reasons, many chapters, many paragraphs, sanctification for good reason, we need clarity there. But it seems that adoption has been that one where we've perhaps overlooked this. And it ought to be given more thought than maybe it has. Packer gets at this, I believe, in his book when he says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God reconciled, adopted as sons, no longer enemies. But we would rightly ask, how is it that this could be true? How is Christ qualified to reconcile such great odds? Verse 19, the fullness of God. Look at Paul's words. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is not merely a man waving a flag saying, please God, be merciful, trying to get God's attentions on his way to judgment. 
the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in him. This is the God-man reconciling God and man. The fullness of who God is in Christ, sufficient to mediate between sinful man and holy God because of the fact the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Christ. But we could ask this further. How is it that he actually accomplished this? Was it merely the fact that the God-man showed up and said, the fullness of God dwells in me, I am the image of the invisible God, go in peace. No, our New Testaments tell us that it's not merely that he was born, but that he died. The sort of death that he came to die, testifying of the life that he lived. That's exactly what it says in verse 20 through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How is it that those are enemies with God are now at peace? How is it that we should rightly have every reason to fear the punishment of God are now told to run to God as our father? Because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. Fullness of God dwelling in him, dying on a cross as the sufficient mediator. This right here is the pulsing heartbeat of the good news of the gospel. This right here. Because you may this morning be convinced, your conscience screaming at you, knowing that you are at enmity with God. even knowing that your guilt rightly condemns you. There's nothing you can do to just imagine that it isn't there or numb yourself with some other hobby or distract yourself with some other thought or affection. What this proclaims and what this testifies is that Christ has come to take the sins of his people to bear the guilt of sin, sufficiently paying for them and cleansing us by his blood that we can be reconciled. No longer enemies, children, adopted, welcomed. Remember the teaching of Romans 5. For while we were still weak, yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were Reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Something accomplished in past tense by Christ upon the cross. What that means is that I am not looking at my life hoping that at the end of my days, there will be sufficient reason for God to say, that's my boy. Because reconciliation has happened. The very event that must take place to reconcile a holy God to sinful man has been accomplished at the cross. It is a done deal. So the assurance of my faith 
and the great confidence that I am God's son has nothing to do with my behavior in a particular moment, but squarely, soundly upon the person of Christ, and I enjoy all of those benefits by faith in him. That is the good news of reconciliation. This is why those who've gone before us, our Puritan parents reminding us in the same charge being picked up in every generation, stop looking at yourself, essentially is what would be saying. Thomas Watson saying, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. We would do well to remember that because we live in a day and an age and a generation where we look 10 looks at self and one look at Christ and say, how come I just don't feel like worshiping God today? How come it seems like sanctification is such a slow growth? How come it seems like everybody else just doesn't understand me? Stop looking at yourself. For every one look at self, take 10 looks at Christ the great reconciler of all between heaven and earth. This is the vitality of our faith, the very reason that we sing at the top of our lungs, the very reason we pray with great boldness for the conversion of our friends, and that we ultimately stand enamored with God's grace. Christ is the reconciler. That means I am no longer the enemy of God. I am his friend. Now, church, if God has reconciled sinners to himself... What great hope and what great expectation we should have in his ability to reconcile fellow sinners. Do you not see that that's the natural implication of this? Is there strife between you and your spouse? Is there strife between you and your children? Is there strife between you and another member of this church? The very implications of this doctrine, Christ being the reconciler between holy God and sinful man, is the very reason that we as Christians actually run towards conflict. Because we believe that the gospel actually unites those who have been once severed by sin. When we run towards it with the understanding of the cross being the very thing that will reconcile two knuckleheaded people who have given themselves over to something other than the adoration of Christ and the trust in him as the supreme, preeminent over all things. He is the great reconciler. He is the great hope for this and every church when we consider that he's taken the greatest breach, the greatest offense that could ever be done, and he has paid for it by his own blood. How much more so should we anticipate and expect that Christ will continue to reconcile us to each other. We glory and we rest in the supremacy of Christ because he's also the reconciler of all things. So what does it look like for a church to confess that Christ is all sufficient and all supreme? Is it just to say we worship Jesus is it just merely to have a doctrinal statement that affirms that church, they want to exalt Christ, and so we're good? When we say we worship Jesus, when we worship Christ, it means so much more than Jesus is our hero, that Jesus is just a role model, that he is just a guru. According to the Bible, it's, it's much more. 
Because according to scriptures, worship is not just veneration. It's actually a restructuring of the entirety of our lives around the reality of who this God is. It is more than just lip service. It is more than just doctrinal clarity in a statement. It is actually transformation. That's what it means to worship this God. But even in saying that, we must be so clear and so careful because this sort of transformation, it doesn't come by compulsion. It might for a time. It might, guilt might be a good motivator for a little while. Fear might be a good motivator for transformation for a little while, but it does not endure. The only thing that endures over the long haul in the midst of persecution or even in the face of sin is the sort of transformation that comes as a result of beholding Christ and his spirit actually, by grace, bringing about a new nature. As we behold Christ and consider his worth, we find that our desires for him and our glad submission to him, it becomes this joyful sacrifice of praise. We're probably very familiar with Isaac Watts's hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, because he's getting at this very issue, isn't he? That last line about demands my soul, my life, my all, it's pretty costly. How does a person move from wherever they're at today by saying, that demands my soul, my life, my all? Well, that's the chronology of, of Watts's hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross, on whence the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And in the next verse, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, that love, the cross, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The sort of transformation that we're talking about in regards to worship that restructures the entirety of someone's life comes as a result of gazing at the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, primarily seeing God in the flesh upon the cross to reconcile sinners to a holy God. We exalt Christ because in beholding Christ, we become enamored with him. And in that beholding, we are transformed. And so the greatest guard against false teaching, whether it's in the city of the church of the Colossians or in our own day, and the greatest motivation for fruitful labors as we move forward are found in our consideration of Christ and who he is. So the great prayer for our lives ought to be that God would continue to grow us in our understanding of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ that we could, in our lives, and our church, say we desire him to be preeminent. And it has transformed us here and here and here. And we have great confidence for the future there because of who he is. Let's look to him and ask him to do that very thing. Father, we rejoice to hear that you have given us your son. That you've not withheld him. You've not given us a portion of him, that you've not just given us an echo of him, that you've not just given us a representative, but that you've given us yourself for us and for our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform us by this great declaration, by this great announcement, 
that we would continue to behold Christ and that we would know something more of his all-sufficiency and his great supremacy over all things. Lord, guard us from these things just becoming pet doctrines that we love, that they might become the very truths that transform who we are, that shape our emotions, ambitions, affections, our thinking, our responses, all that we are as your image bearers. Would you transform us and shape us into the image of this Son? We ask that you would continue to do so in our homes and our lives as individuals. We ask that you would do so in regards to Veritas Church and the membership here and the future of her days and all that you would see fit to bless her with. Lord, may that be the testimony that Christ would be known and seen, proclaimed as supreme and sufficient by your spirit and for your good pleasure and glory, we ask.